Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. You're on Saturday Magazine with Fiona and Paul. It's the 27th of January and we're welcoming to the microphone Misha Ketchell, regular guest and editor of The Conversation. Thanks for coming into the studio, Misha. Oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Misha. So we were, I mean, to be honest, it does feel a bit like yesterday's news in some way, but it has reverberations for what will come forward uh, and how we're going to see politicians uh, manipulate and tell and call out stories. We were talking about Peter Dutton, of course, and his uh, suggestion and that we boycott Woolworths. What a, what a, what a terrible thing to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, look, you know, it would be better if, if he didn't do that. Uh, I think if you unpack it, it is complicated and it's perhaps more complicated um, than some people sort of um, imagine because the reality is is that within politics there's an incentive structure um, and the incentive structure is to do things that are going to help you get elected. Mm. Um, and we know that taking certain positions that are divisive positions that sometimes – um, fray at the social fabric of the country that you're wanting to lead, mm-hmm. in the short term will actually help you attain that leadership position. And mm-hmm. if you're the leader of the opposition, I guess the clue is in the name, opposition, mm-hmm. there is an inherent bias towards opposing, to mm-hmm. identifying problems and delaying those problems out. That's part of the key job description. Um, so so I, I do think we've got to be a little bit careful with opposition leaders or with politicians who do take those opposing positions with being blanket critical of them for doing so. Mm. I think what you've got to do is you've got to look at the contexts in which they do it and really make a judgment call about whether it is sort of being manipulative and divisive or whether it's sort of serving the public interest within the parameters of their role. Now, I, for example, would make a distinction and I would say as much as I thought that, you know, and I think many people thought that Peter Dutton's position on the voice to parliament was disappointing and in some ways divisive, Mm. um, that there was a legitimate counter-argument to be made Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that there was a reasonable role for politicians to make that that Mm counter-argument. So I I think it's not in every case you can just say, well, they're just being divisive or or whatever. I I would say in, in this case the way that this debate has happened, it sort of seems to be clearly inflammatory populism, mm. the way it's been framed. I don't think it's been very helpful. Um, and I do think the politicians have some responsibility for the people that go too far. But again, you've also got to be careful because um, if a politician says something and then somebody goes too far, mm. there is a cause and effect question and mm. politicians have to be able to speak mm. and they can't be responsible for everyone that does something which is outside the parameters of what they've said. So, mm. yeah. But overall, I think, you know, you would prefer that the comments were a little more circumspect and a little bit more constructive. And um, the conversation published an article this week by a group of academics at Deakin University who have been studying attitudes to Australia Day. They asked a question about Australia Day and the support for it in, mm. in 2021. I think it was about mm. 60%. It's declining slowly. So they mm. asked the same question in 2023. It was 56%. Mm. Um, so we can definitely see that there is a significant proportion of the population that is not 
supporting the current Australia Day, mm. that proportion is growing. Mm. And if you want Australia Day to be a day of unity that brings everyone together, I think increasingly the argument for changing the date is is strong. Mm. And uh, I think that's, I mean, that's a much more measured response uh, to my earlier, our earlier tirade, Paul. Uh, but I do think that there is also the element which is you could change the date, but they'll never celebrate. So that is also another undertone of, for example, you could see at the r- r- rally in Melbourne yesterday that there will be, there is a move to change the date, which, you know, I mean, I wonder how long would that take? I mean, it would be too – I can't even imagine. It's almost like we would burn up in a crisp to a crisp in the culture wars around making that decision. Well, there's so much of this sense of of sort of anxiety around this is confected. I mean, don't forget this date only dates back to I think it's the early 1990s mm. that we actually established this day. So it's not like some yeah, huge – Yeah, it's not a massive shift. It's not a massive shift. It's not. A, I mean, it's only, you know, in, in, you know in, in my lifetime this day was sort of created and became a thing. Um, and now we're seeing that there are issues with it. Um, and look, you know, I, I think it's probably fair enough to say that any other date we go to, there will continue to be mm. an element of legitimate protest on that day as well because mm. any significant national day, those who are disenfranchised or who feel that the nation isn't serving their interests as well, they're going to have something to say. I think that's fine. Um, but, it, but it certainly feels sometimes like it's belittling the issue to – you know, talk about Australia Day merchandise when there are so many legitimate issues that the First Nations people have about the, the you know, they're closing the gap and there's so many other more relevant points that could be raised and dealt with. I think that's true. Uh, I do think that there is within the Australian population um, many people who want to have an opportunity to celebrate the good things about this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are good things about this nation and it becomes really problematic because um, that celebration can be, um, you know, traumatising or unpleasant for Indigenous people or other people who mm. feel mm. disenfranchised by um, certain aspects of the ways that Australia runs. Um, but also I, I think that the the politicians that are manipulating this issue are manipulating a genuine feeling that is there in the in the population that there are many people that do want to have a day where we do come together mm. and celebrate, and mm. I think um, we should acknowledge that, and I think that's a reasonable thing to to do. I mean, Australia is not traditionally a very sort of patriotic country in the same way, mm. for example, the US is. We're not as convinced by this story about our exceptionalism. We tend to be much more laid back. Um, but but my personal view is that for the sense of social cohesion, we should actually try to find a space where we can celebrate Australia without being sort of offensive if possible. Mm. Um, Thank you. That was a very considered answer, actually. Um, Well done, Misha, (laughs) for navigating those tricky waters. Um, Let's change the subject. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on this week. Um, Where do you want to go first, Misha? Because, you know, the the politics that have been kicking around up in Canberra have been pretty big. Um, Do you want to talk about the new chair of the ABC? Uh, I do, yes. Well, I think that's... I mean, a really interesting question. I'm not quite sure how much because I've just been away on a very lovely long break. Um, <laughs> you've talked about the the sort of the the um, controversy at the ABC over Antoinette Latouf. Um, we did a couple of weeks ago, yeah. yeah. She's sort of a former colleague of mine at um, Media Watch, I should declare. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, um, she was dismissed from a role, a casual role as a presenter on the ABC. Um, it was a five-day role after three days um, for retweeting something from Human Rights Watch. Um, about um, Israel-Gaza conflict. 
um, that was deemed to be controversial and there was a lot of criticism of her from um, a group called Lawyers for Israel, um, sort of a, a Jewish lawyers group. Who were doing some um, lobbying behind the scenes to doing, actually Doing get lobbying behind the scenes. And there was, this, there was this big sense that basically the ABC had caved into external pressure and thrown an employee <laughs> under the bus. Now... Um, there was a meeting of staff, I think it was last week, a big Zoom meeting. Mm. There was a vote of no confidence in the managing director. Uh, the board um, responded by um, giving the, the managing director, David Anderson, their, their full backing. But there is this sense of a crisis of confidence within the ABC at mm. the moment. Um, it's in a level of turmoil. And into that context, Ida Buttrose, the current chair, her, um, her term's finishing in the middle of this year, and they've appointed Kim Williams. And Kim Williams is has been a media executive in Australia for a long time. He's very well known. He's very urbane, very sophisticated, um, quite highly regarded. Some people have been very critical because he used to work for News Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, actually, I was going to ask: is that a is that a, an issue for you as a journo that someone from you know that organisation is now looking after our national broadcaster? Well, <laughs> it's interesting you said. I've just been reading a book called Network of Lies about what um, Fox News did after the. Um, after the 20, um, 2020 election. Um, and, you know, I mean, certainly there are lots of valid criticisms you can make of News Corp, but I don't think that anybody who has ever worked in a media organisation like that, you know, is somebody who is beyond the pale in terms of taking a role like the role at the ABC. Yeah, not at all. I mean, he was there for 18 years, but, I mean, surely that just really gives him a lot of experience in the Australian media landscape. It does, and it's worth noting, I mean, he's he's led, uh, you know, he led Sky News, um, he's, he's done a lot of broadcast stuff, he's got a lot of relevant experience. Mm. He also had some significant conflict with senior managers and editors at News Corp, so he sort of is somebody who's got a very independent mind. Mm. And it's worth remembering the role of a chair really predominantly, the key thing you do as mm. a chair is you appoint the CEO, mm. um, the managing director in the case of the ABC. David Anderson, the managing director, has just been reappointed um, mm. for a number of years, so that job's sort of done. Mm. And then your job... Or well, do you think that was done intentionally before the uh, outgoing chair leaves? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. The timing was interesting. The decision to extend his contract was made. I think it was earlier, like in the middle of last year, mm. um, it did seem to be an unusual decision somewhat. So it does mean that, that somebody's locked in. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I, I mean, my view is often it does help for leadership to have a sort of level of security of tenure yeah. to be able to think in a more long-term mm. way. Mm. Um, anyway, look, I, I just think there have been some people, you know, on Twitter who have been arguing that Kim Williams is a you know Murdoch stooge or it's going to be, mm. you know, involve some sort of destruction of the ABC. I don't think that's the case. Mm. I think he mm. seems like a really good appointment. Everyone thinks thinks he's good and um, I guess we'll have to watch and wait. We, we publish a, a media academic called um, Dennis Muller who's terrific on these questions of mm. media ethics. Mm. Yeah, He wrote a great piece about this and basically said, talked about the challenges that Williams um, faces and really the key challenge for Kim Williams now is about how he can bring the ABC together and create a, a, a better sense of confidence because mm. there is a lot of division within the organisation. And he did come out and, and didn't talk this week uh, about the um, the vote of no confidence, actually. He's trying to say, you know, it is right for the national broadcaster to uphold the highest standards of integrity. Um, so I want to take you back to the Antoinette case because I do think one of the things that we talked about here on, on Saturday Magazine was if Antoinette's tweet had been a retweet of an ABC article, which had exactly the same information in, would that have been deemed as bad as the tweet from the uh, the Media Watch? Um, so the tweet, the thing that she retweeted was actually a Human Rights Human Watch. Human Rights Watch, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, you would, 
you would imagine that um, even the managers at the ABC who seemed very sort of um, afraid when they sort of, I, I think, overreacted and, and dismissed mm. Antoinette, um, uh, you would imagine that they would pause about doing that, about retweeting some of their own content. <laughs> that, would, yeah. that would become quite ridiculous. Yeah, because they, um, they had retweeted, they had the ABC had tweeted that themselves. That's right. So, look, it, it becomes really complicated. I mean, it's interesting. There was an article about it today in the in the um, Fairfax Papers, quoting John Fain, the former, um, you know, um, Melbourne radio presenter. And he said, basically, what the problem was this. Antoinette was a very strong um, activist and advocate. You know, a couple of weeks before she took on the role, then suddenly she takes on the role presenting and suddenly you're trying mm. to say switch, you know, switch roles and you're going to be a sort of a neutral presenter. Mm. And I think everybody agrees or, or most people agree that if you are going to have a role as a presenter on a, on a major radio program, that you do have to fulfil a role that involves um, being circumspect, putting some of your personal views to one side or in the background. And John Fain's argument was basically you just can't switch mm. from one to the other so quickly. So mm. the appointment itself in his view, was problematic. Now, some people argue that that as a presenter on radio, you shouldn't have to put your views to one side. And the other big thing underneath all of this is the big conflict in the ABC around cultural diversity and culturally diverse mm. staff. Mm. Because there's been this whole movement, which is really important about bringing more diversity to public mm. broadcasters, and that's absolutely right. You need to have a range of perspectives. The whole point of the range of perspectives is people bring... Uh, their unique cultural experiences. Mm. But then with that often comes sort of almost an implied claim that you've got a right to express those cultural views or those individual aspects of mm. yourself on air or in your public role. Yep. And yet in journalism, there's this tradition, which is mm. that you try to hush some of those aspects of yourself to try to be impartial, mm. to do the job well on behalf of all the community. And those two things mm. come into conflict. And People have got very different views on how you solve that conflict, and mm -hmm. I think that's what's playing out at the ABC now. Yeah. Well, they have lost quite a few of their uh, staff over this, and you know those voices that they're trying to in increase the the uh, voices on on the uh, on the ABC. The, some of the staff are now gone, so it's sort of created created quite a problem for for the ABC but it's not just the ABC there are numbers of other media outlets that are actually encountering this in their newsrooms oh, I don't think there's a media outlet in Australia that isn't struggling with this question um, yeah. and you know I speak to a lot of senior editors in different in different organizations and I know it's a problem mm. um, because there is this difficulty so we had it at the conversation um, so you might have um, heard or read about there was a petition going around about the coverage of Gaza and Israel mm. um, put forward by the MEAA and it was critical of uh, a, the Australian media's coverage arguing effectively that it had been somewhat pro-Israel and, and sort of mm. insufficiently attentive to the voices and experience mm. Of, of Palestinians. Um, and one of the things that happened was, for example, at The Age, there were some staff members who signed that petition who were then told that they couldn't work on the mm. um, Israel-Palestine coverage because mm. effectively by signing that petition, mm. they were seen to have taken a position. Now, yeah. some people would say, well, you know, that doesn't change their capacity to do the job objectively. But I, I mean, personally, my view is I do think it does create a potential issue. It does make it harder. Mm. When you're a reporter and you go out and you knock on somebody's door um, or you go to their community um, or you experiencing them often at a time of great trauma or grief, mm. if you're coming in with a known view, I think it makes it really hard for people to trust mm. 
mm-hmm. your impartiality and the openness, mm-hmm. the openness mm-hmm. of your mind. So there's, you know, it's a lot of conflict about it. Well, uh, and I also know that there was a very distinct age group between those people who signed and those people who didn't sign, the people that did sign that uh, that letter. Oh, I haven't actually followed that. Was it like a was it a skew, yeah, it was a very uh, skewed yeah. all uh, the all no one of a certain age over say I would imagine mid forties. But we need to move on because we have an ad break. We are going to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're on Saturday Magazine with Paul and Fiona speaking with Misha Ketchell. We'll be right back after this. You're with Paul and Fiona on Saturday Magazine. It's a gorgeous day in Victoria here. Not as humid as it is in the far northern reaches of our country, but we've got Misha Ketchell. Uh, what are we talking about, Fiona? Well, uh, Paul, I think the next thing we're going to chat about is, of course, the news of the Stage 3 tax cuts and the changes that have been announced by the Albanese government this week. Uh, Misha, there's a lot of noise going on about this and it's not going to end anytime soon. Could you give us a, a rundown on where this is at and what the proposed changes are? Okay. Well, the short version is... The Morrison government had um, some tax cuts that were legislated. There were three stages. One and two have been delivered. They predominantly um, delivered uh, tax cuts to um, people on lower and middle incomes. Stage three, which was due to come in in the middle of, um, I think it's this year, actually it's Mm. this year in 2024, Mm. um, was offering tax cuts that were more skewed towards high income earners. I won't go into all the numbers. (laughs) It gets very complicated. Yeah. but basically, the Albanese government had, when in opposition um, and when asked about this question consistently, said it was 100% committed to delivering these these tax cuts. Mm. And this week, they announced the change of policy that they're going to change the way the tax cuts are delivered. The quantum, the amount of the tax cuts will stay roughly the same, but rather than almost all of the benefit going to higher income earners, mm. they're spreading out it across the spectrum Mm. Um, so a lot more people in sort of the middle and lower income brackets will get a will get a tax cut. Um, and surely during the cost of living crisis, this is a good thing. That's right. So there. So the government's argument, um, Anthony Albanese at the National Press Club, basically argued we've changed our position. Mm. We've changed our position because of the cost of living, and this is a good thing, and everyone's going to get a benefit, including the high income earners. I mean. Mm. Uh, basically what's happened is people earning over $200,000, they would have got around about a $9,000 tax cut, and now they're going to get a tax cut of around about $4,500. So um, if you're in the top income brackets, you're still getting significant Mm. tax relief, but it means that people on average income, say about, you know, $70,000, for example, are going to get, you know, a much bigger tax cut Mm. now as well. So Mm. so that's you, you could argue that's good. A lot of people are winners out of it. But the question underneath it all is... A broken promise. Correct. I was going to say three things for me. Is it one? It, it sounds like a fairer um, distribution of the tax cuts, but one, it, it's a broken promise. And secondly, the lower down the economic demographic you give tax breaks, then the more inflationary the, that spending becomes, which is another economic issue that, you know, I think they've just said it's not going to be inflationary. But history tells us that, you know, it, that goes back into the economy and it does become inflationary. So I think those are the two key questions for me. Was it right to break the promise? And are we going to give ourselves a little bit of an inflation headache in, in 12 months' time? Mm. So, so the promise is a good juicy, juicy question. We'll, we'll come back to that one. Let's start with the inflation one. Um, Michelle Grattan actually got up and asked this question at the at the press club on Thursday. It was the first question I think Anthony Albanese got. And I don't think the answer was very good. Um Basically, the government has said, look, we did. We spoke to Treasury, 
we got um, feedback from uh, Michelle Bullock, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, that it wasn't that these tax cuts weren't going to significantly change um, interest rate projections or inflation projections. Mm. The reason is that the overall quantum, the amount of money that's coming in the tax cuts is about the same. I think over the forward estimates is about $90 million, something like mm. that, right? Mm. So they're not actually pumping more money in. But your argument um, is absolutely right that what they are doing is giving it more to people who are likely to spend it. Mm. Um, and so... On that basis, yes, it will probably be somewhat more inflationary, but not really massively so, not enough to really get too stressed about it. It was interesting, actually. Ross Gittins had a good piece in the paper today. Um, he's an economic columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. And he basically said the whole idea that you can um, do something about cost of living mm. that is not inflationary is nonsense mm. because the whole point yeah. of raising interest rates is to raise the cost of living so people spend less to push inflation down. Yeah. Mm. So, in actual fact... Um, the economics it, is working. Yeah. If you're going to do something about cost of living, it will be somewhat inflationary. Mm. Um, the truth is, from a policy point of view, all the experts say it's very hard to argue that this is a bad policy because basically the truth is it isn't going to be... If it is inflationary, it'll only be inflationary absolutely at the margins. Momentarily, mm. yeah. And it's not going to push inflation up much. So, no. that's not really a big problem. It is going to help people who really need it. Mm. Um, we had a great article uh, this week by Peter Martin talking about cost of living. The cost of living is biting much harder than the CPI would tell you um, because I think at some point, I think it's about 1998, um, the way that the CPI was calculated was changed and um, interest rates were taken out of it. Mm. So it doesn't really show... That which is the single biggest which issue is single that biggest people are thing. facing. Yeah. The reason they made that change, actually, because the Reserve Bank argued... We don't want to be in a situation where if we increase interest rates to push down CPI, then it pushes it up because we've increased interest <laughs> rates. Um, anyway, so fair um, argument. So, um, yeah. So, 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 so basically, um, the the cost of living that people are going through has been really understated. People mm. really are suffering, mm. um, and I think the government's been very attentive to that. And you know, the the question of whether this is a good policy or not, I don't think it's really a question. It's a good policy. The promise is the thing. Yeah. Well, but do you think I people mean, will forgive him because their policy is deemed to be better stroke fairer? This, well, is, this is the question. Well, this will, is, will anybody this, get away with this it? This is the imponderable. This is the hard one to, to work out. So on the question of the broken promise, um, again, um, Anthony Albanese was asked this at the press club on Thursday, um, and he said basically, well, all these things have happened, the war in Ukraine, COVID, mm. cost of living, Therefore, we've changed our position. Um, and the truth is that most journalists are, I think, quite rightly pretty unsatisfied with that response because mm. the truth is all those things were known. When he was saying, even before the last election, that, you know, this is going to be law and I'm standing by it and absolutely mm. and we'll never mm. change it, all these things were known. Mm. So Walid Ali actually has written a, a really good piece in the Age newspaper uh, mm. talking about this, and he's very strong on the sort of political culture implications. Like, what does it mean for a politician to make a promise? Mm. Um, if they do make a promise, do they have to stand by it? And he basically says, just because you like the outcome, and I think we're arguing everyone does like the outcome, this is good tax cuts for everybody across the whole spectrum, is it is it still a good precedent? Now, you can see that the, the News Corp newspapers are really going very hard. I think the Daily Telegraph mm. had something about... Um, you know, elbow being a liability, mm. L-I-A-R ability. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they the, love a pun. Yeah, the, the Australians going very hard on you know PM's deceit to cost twenty eight billion was a headline one day. Mm. You know, they're mm. they're really pushing up this line of like mean and tricky. 
The, the problem is, does it look mean and tricky if you give everybody a lot more money? I, I also say that's, that's right. I mean, you know, the bottom line is on the broken promise. While, you know, there are a lot of um, uh, sentiments about how that plays out politically, your average person on the street isn't really going to mind that much, I can't imagine, when they're getting money in their back pocket. I also think, you know, people have got a short-term memory. We know mm. about the sports rorts of the last government. We know about, you know, the taking on of cabinet positions that, that wasn't, um, you know, issued to the public. There's a lot of stuff that politicians do behind the scenes that they do for their own reasons. Mm. This seems like it was done for the right reasons mm. and there's political gain being made out of the, a broken promise that I think you're right, Fiona. But the average Joe doesn't really care about. They're not. I mean, and, and yet I think the federal opposition still has to approve it, uh, uh, these tax cuts, don't they? It's got to go through. No, I think they can get them through the House without, right. um, because of the independence. And yeah, the they've grants. got enough votes right. to carry, I yeah. think. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it would be, you know, Peter Dutton and the opposition if they ride against it. Well, then they're riding against this very idea that they're the party of the the, the quiet Australians. Of lower taxes. Well, lower. that was the thing. There was a bit of political wrangling this week because um, somebody on the coalition side said something which implied they were actually going to repeal the tax cuts and that would be, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of politics around this. Mm. But, but there is a thing, I think uh, Michelle Grattan wrote about the history of broken promises. So, for example, the... Um, Kevin Rudd on the um, emissions trading scheme, um, Julia Gillard on the carbon tax, some of uh, Tony Abbott's broken promises around the ABC funding, and I think a couple of other things. I, mm. I forget the details mm. of them all. But mm. there is sort of this history of politicians changing their positions. I mean, mm. even, you know, John Howard changed his position on GST. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think broken promises are politically meaningful. Um, and the real question is going to be, in you know, in... 18 months' time when we go to the next election, will people be agitated about it? I think you're probably right in terms of the political cycle. It's in the middle. It's a tax cut. Everyone's going to be pretty happy. Um, but I still think that the opposition might be able to make it an issue, a demerit. Um, they will, yes. We've had a text in, Fiona, um, and, and Misha. Someone uh, is texting, Grant has said, um, they talk about staggering tax cuts for people earning less than 45000 but it actually works out to $804, which is just $2.20 a day. What an insult. So I think, you know, depending on where you sit within that spectrum, these tax cuts may not, you know, change your world that much. Um, I think, Misha, we, we're running out of time and I want to move on to the next topic, ScoMo going and also the upcoming ABC um, doco on the, on the Libs in Power. So oh, yes, it's on can, Sunday. Can you just like, yeah, what's your view in terms of the timing of ScoMo's resignation and where he's going to work? Oh, God. Well, a very interesting question. So he's working with a, an outfit in the US, isn't he? With, um, yeah, an, ex, an ex-defense um, yeah. associate of, of Trump's. Um, look, I think there's always really, in, you know, difficult questions around if you've been in public office and you take a job that is privatising the knowledge that you had in public office, mm. what the ethics around that and what knowledge you're taking. So when I saw that, I did raise my eyebrows and I was a bit like, well, I'll be interested to see what happens here. But having said that, you know, the counter thing is politicians have to have somewhere to go. Mm. I mean, after mm. they've finished their political careers, they should be able to move on. Um, so I think that's probably one to watch. Uh, on the ABC docker, I don't know. I'm fascinated. I'm really looking forward to it. And on um, Scott Morrison going, uh, you know, I, I think the interesting thing really is his legacy. Uh, there was an article that, that we published uh, this week by the historian um, Frank Bongiorno talking about um, ScoMo's legacy. And he said, basically, there's not much to recommend it um, in mm. terms of mm. if you look at the achievements um, of his time in office, 
Um, there's not a lot substantial um, that can be said about it. Um, and it was a very strong piece. In fact, we sort of were a bit unsure about it because it, it was so critical. We were a bit like, is this politically partisan? Mm. You know, how, mm. how far has it gone? But if you look at the evidence, I think mm. he was really just weighing up all of the achievements. And, you know, it is a reasonably thin, I think, record in terms of political achievements. That's right. I mean, Malcolm Farr wrote a piece in The Age and suggested that, you know, he was go- Scott would be going off to be with people like himself um, in the sense that it would be very hard for him to get work, meaningful work in Australia because his brand was, and his name is so tainted. I think that's right. And look, I, I still think there's a, you know, amongst a certain um, group of people, not everyone's going to care that much, but that thing of swearing himself into those ministries without telling anybody, I think there's a real sense of betrayal about that. Oh, um, there was some great memes this week about six people leaving the parliament. <laughs> <laughs> not, far, not one. Yeah. Amisha, it's been excellent to have you in, as always. So many things to talk about, but we we, we do have to wrap it up for another t- another month. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's fun. Thank uh, you, Misha. Misha Insightful Ketchel, as always. Yeah, editor of The Conversation. Everyone... Do visit The Conversation. I I check it out every week. It's a fantastic source for content and for news. um, And we really appreciate your feedback and your ideas, Misha. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.